The Bible from 30,000 feet, soaring through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel? Let's go there. Daniel. Now, last week, your pilot failed to land the plane. Should have landed in Daniel chapter 12. We've been in a holding pattern all week to finish this book. So because of that, and you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard for me because I like to go deep. I don't like to go wide. And, um, and yet this is the Bible from 30,000 feet. So it's, 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 it's harder for me to edit myself and reel it in. And so we didn't finish Daniel. So we're going to finish Daniel uh, this week. And I was thinking about it. It gives us the opportunity to understand what scholars have called the backbone of biblical prophecy. It is one of the most monumental sections in the Bible, especially Daniel chapter 9. But if you remember last week, I gave you two homework questions. Do you remember that? Question number one, why is Daniel written in two languages? Let me explain the question. Chapter 1 in Daniel is written in Hebrew. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4, so chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3 is written in Hebrew. Chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 7, verse 28, is written in the Chaldean language of Aramaic, not Hebrew. And then chapters 8 through the rest of the book are back to Hebrew. Why two languages? Well, the answer could be that Daniel was bilingual and the prophecies came in a culture where there were different languages. Okay, that's too kind of simplistic an explanation. The real, I think, explanation behind that is sort of a a tip-off of the Holy Spirit to let us know what we're dealing with. Chapter 1 is the captivity of Judah. You would expect it to be in Hebrew. It's Judah-centered. However, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 7, verse 28, the Gentile nations of the earth are primarily in focus. The times of the Gentiles, the succession of Gentile nations is the focus, hence it's in a Gentile script, a language that is is Gentile-oriented, non-Jewish. Beginning in chapter 8 all the way to chapter 12, it reverts back again to prophecies and nations that will deal with or touch upon Israel all the way to the second coming. Now, a second question I asked, since we closed with the idea of Hanukkah, and we closed with Hanukkah, if if you're new and you're wondering, why are you talking about Hanukkah in a church on Wednesday night Bible study? Because we mentioned that between the Testaments, a Jewish liberator overturned one of the gentlemen that is prophesied in here as the great persecutor of the Jews, Antiochus Epiphanes, and the Syrian oppression began, and the Hasmonean princes, Judas Maccabeus and the rest, uh, subjugated him, took back their temple. That happened on the 25th of Kislev, and that happens around Christmas time, and it's called Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. We explained that to you when we closed. And so I asked you the question that you had to do homework on, where do we find Jesus celebrating Hanukkah in the New Testament? Any of you discover it? Anybody? Shout it out if you know it. Light of the world. What is it? John 10. You got it. John 10. Okay. John 10. Let me read it to you. Verse uh, 22. It says... Now, here it is, John chapter 10, verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. It's wintertime, it's the feast of dedication. Interestingly, in the Torah, there are no winter festivals. In the law, there are spring festivals, and there are fall festivals. Yet it says, Jesus was in the temple at the Feast of Dedication. That's a reference to the dedication of the temple by the Maccabeans after they overturned the Syrian oppression. 
And that happened, the inauguration of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, Hanukkah, happened between the Old and the New Testament. So that by the time of Jesus, the festival of lights, Hanukkah, was being celebrated. It's always a winter feast, hence it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So who said John chapter 10? Okay, give yourself a pat on the back. Awesome. Or if you're next to him, give him a pat on the back. Come on, give him some love. All right, way to go. That's good homework. Now, back to the book itself. You and I really have only two options, two attitudes that we can adopt when it comes to our relationship with the world. Number one, we can try to escape it. Number two, we can try to engage it. If we try to escape it, we want to push it away, it's bad, we wake up, we read the headlines, we hear the news, we get fed up with the corruption, we're tired of the same old stories, we're tired of the bad headlines, and so we can sort of try to wash our hands of the world, after all, we're God's chosen people, we're Christians, we don't have anything to do with the world. When you try to wash your hands of a situation around you, you might find yourself like Pontius Pilate who tried to wash his hands in dealing with Jesus and it came back to haunt him. The other option and really the best course of action is not to try to escape the world but try to engage the world. That is to try to face it head on, to embrace it in all of its complexity and confusion, to bring healing and love and light and purpose and meaning and hope into this dying world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's dealing in compassion with it. That's getting our hands not washed of it, but getting our hands dirty in it to serve that lost world. Now that is the course of action that the central figure of this book, that's his course of action. Daniel engaged in the culture around him and I should say, in this case, the political culture around him. He was very, very involved in Babylon. He entered Babylon as a refugee, but quickly he became royalty. He was a refugee, 15 years of age, we believe Daniel was, when he was removed from his home, his parents, the temple, the law, Judaism, and placed 550 miles east in Babylon. But we read his story. He purposed in his heart. God raised him up, and he became the prime minister of the land. He was very engaged in the culture. In chapter 2, just to kind of introduce that engagement, you don't have to go back to it. Um, but this is how he got engaged. He was taken captive. He was given a three-year graduate course in the culture, customs, language of the Chaldeans. And one night, Nebuchadnezzar had a horrible dream. It disturbed him greatly. He called in all of his wise guys and all of his magicians, and he said, I had a horrible dream. I need you to tell me what it means. And they said, great, tell us what it is, and we'll tell you what it means. And uh, he figured out they were stalling for time, and he says, I don't know if you can tell me what it means unless you can actually tell me what it was. If you don't tell me what it was, I'm going to cut you up into pieces and burn your houses down. And they said, look, no king in history has ever given that. He goes, I'm the first. You're all dead. Well, when Daniel heard about that, he told Arioch, the captain of the guard, tell the king, why, why so hasty? Give us a little bit of time. We will tell the king what he dreamed and what the interpretation is. So Daniel took his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, a.k.a. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a prayer meeting. God revealed what the dream was. He came into the king and he said, King, um, I'm here to give the answer to your dream. He goes, oh, so you can interpret dreams? He goes, I can't really do anything more than anybody else in your kingdom. There's nothing special about me, but there's a God in heaven who knows the future. And he's revealed to me what you dreamed. And king, you were on your bed wondering about the future. You were wondering, what about my kingdom when I'm gone? What will happen to my kingdom? 
He said, you saw a great image with a head of gold, with a chest and arms made out of silver, with the stomach and thighs of bronze, with legs of iron, and the feet out of iron and clay. He said, King, you are that head of gold, but after you another kingdom will arise. The chest and arms of silver. And after that another kingdom will arise. And then an iron rule kingdom will arise. And then at some point there will be a coalition of nations somehow related to that iron-legged statue part of the kingdom. And in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom on this earth that will never end. Because in your dream, O king, you saw this huge stone not cut with human hands that came out of the heavens and smashed that statue in the feet. It became, it became chaff. The wind blew it away and this mountain grew and covered the earth. That's God's everlasting kingdom. Well, Daniel gets promoted. He becomes, interesting note here, the head of what is called by Herodotus, the father of history, the Greek historian, Daniel becomes the head of the Magi, the Magoi. The Magoi were a special class, a hereditary class, and their primary job was to interpret dreams. The Magoi, the Magi, these wise men of Babylon... I said they were an hereditary group. That is, uh, it was passed down. You had to be Chaldean in order to be one. Interesting that Nebuchadnezzar broke his rule and placed a Jew as the head of the Magi. Fast forward. Have you ever wondered how these kings from the east discovered where Jesus was going to be born? Why were they looking for a star in the heavens? Why were they looking at the astronomical wonders of the heavens to come from the area of Babylon and say, where is he who is to be born the king of the Jews? Why would they come unless perhaps they were primed by one by the name of Daniel, who at one time was their leader in his promotion by King Nebuchadnezzar? So, that's the dream in chapter 2. That's all a setup of where we're going. By the time we get to chapter 7, we remember the dream occurs again. This time, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. Daniel gets it. Same subject matter, but different visuals. In chapter 7, Daniel gets a vision at night, not of a, a polymetallic image, gleaming and shiny and glorious and splendorous, but ravenous beasts who tear each other apart. First he sees an animal, a lion, a winged lion, which represented Babylon. Then he saw a bear tilted on one side that represented the uneven coalition of the Medo-Persian Empire. Then he saw a leopard that moved swiftly from the west and conquered the east. And then finally he saw a fourth, what it calls a dreadful and terrible beast. Same exact subject matter. These are kingdoms that will come. Now, if in hearing this you go, well, how do you know they're kingdoms? You're just making up weird interpretations like a lot of prophecy teachers do. Well, I'm glad you asked. In chapter 7, verse 17, it says, those great beasts, which are four, are the four kings which arise out of the earth. And they, as the text goes on, they are named Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. By the time we get to chapter 8, as we mentioned briefly last week, the vision narrows and gets focused on two of those kingdoms. The second and third, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire. Why? Because Daniel is in the Babylonian Empire. He will soon serve in the Medo-Persian Empire under King Cyrus and Darius and so he's dealing with the second and third in chapter 8. This time, it's a little bit different. It's not a uh, bear and a fast-moving leopard. This time, it's a ram and a goat. The ram is in charge. He has two horns, Medo, Persia, and then a goat, 
with a notable horn out of Greece. It says it's the kingdom of Greece. In fact, look at chapter 8, verse 20. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So we're not guessing here. We're not shooting in the dark. The interpretation is given along with the prophecy. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Now, the first king of Greece was Alexander the Great. Philip of Macedon was his father. He was the kingdom of Macedonia. The first king of Greece, the notable king, was Alexander the Great. Verse 22, as for the broken horn and the four that stood in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. If you remember last week, I mentioned that Alexander the Great died in Babylon at age 33, sort of as a pathetic young brat. What do I mean by that? He had conquered the world so quickly, and he had conquered everything that was known at that time as the known world as far as Greece was concerned. Everything they knew about, he conquered. Like from Britain all the way to India, he conquered it all. In Babylon, he sat down and he wept. He cried like a baby in a drunken stupor because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. There's nothing left to do. I'm 33. I'm bored. What am I going to do? I've conquered the world. In Babylon one night, while he was drunk, Alexander the Great was dying. On his deathbed, they asked him, to whom shall the kingdom go? To which he replied, give it to the strong. It was interpreted by everyone at his deathbed to mean his four generals. The kingdom was divided into four. I mentioned them last week. Cassander, General Cassander, General Lysimachus, General Ptolemy, and General Seleucus. They all took a portion of Alexander's empire, the Grecian empire, but none of them ever achieved the kind of vigor, power, rapidity, and strength that Alexander the Great did. Now, in chapter 8, verse 23, it talks about a king arising, having fierce features, and it says they will he will destroy the holy people, a reference to the Jewish people. Back up in verse 12 of chapter 8, gives us a hint, he will oppose the daily sacrifices. I touched on him last week, I just want to add a couple of footnotes in the succession of kings, now there are kings, let's just say, here's Israel in the middle. Of those four generals that divided up the world, two of them were important to Israel because Israel was sandwiched right in the middle of those two. One is called the king of the north, that's Seleucus and Syrian, Syrian Empire, and Ptolemy down in Egypt. Between Syria and Egypt was Israel. So when the king of the north and the king of the south fought, who, who got the crossfire? The Jews. They were sandwiched in the middle. So the Ptolemaic Empire of Egypt and the Seleucid Empire of Syria fought each other extensively for years and years and years. Israel got the brunt of it. The fourth in the dynasty of Seleucid kings was a guy by the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, also called Antiochus Epiphanes. He, he, I believe, was the king arising, verse 23, having fierce features. And destroying the holy people, what did he do? He came into Jerusalem, took it over, killed 80,000 people pretty quickly, took 40,000 captive. He dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus. He put an image of Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed a pig 
Know anything about kosher law? The most unclean flesh in Judaism is a pig. He took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar of sacrifice, that bronze altar in the outer courtyard, took the juices of the swine and drenched the temple floor and compounds with it, just desecrated the whole temple. He put an end to sacrifices. He put an end to the Sabbath. He forbade Jewish circumcision. The male child at eight days of old, he just shut Judaism down. When he did that in the temple, the Jews gave it a specific title. They called that the abomination of desolation. That's why last week I said chapter 8 is the historical template of somebody else who will come in the end times and do that again called the Antichrist. Hold that thought. Because I'm going to see, show that to you in just a moment. Now we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9, man, is the Eiffel Tower of Scripture. It is, it's like looking out the window, Bible from 30,000 feet, and you go, ooh, there's the Eiffel Tower. Or, wow, look at the pyramids. You can see them when you're flying into Cairo. They, they, they shoot up from the landscape. They're an unmistakable landmark. Or Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. It is one of the towering chapters of all of the Bible. Ever heard of Isaac Newton? Sir Isaac Newton, the father of modern science, mathematician, astronomer. Isaac Newton was also a believer in the Bible. And Sir Isaac Newton said you could stake the entire truth of Christianity on the text of Daniel chapter 9 alone. Quite a statement. Now, by the time we get into chapter 9, Daniel is much older. He was 15 when we start the book. He's in his 80s. You know what that means? It means that he has lived the entire Babylonian captivity in Babylon. Seventy years of captivity, he's been there, and it's just about up. He's been there since he was about 15. He's lived there 70 years. He's between 85 and 90. And he remembers... You'll see here that Jeremiah the prophet gave a prediction that the Jews would be in Babylon 70 years. That's given by a prophet who preceded Daniel. You follow me so far? Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, so we're dealing with the second kingdom, not the head of gold. Babylon is gone, Medo-Persian Empire chest, arms of silver, the bear, tilted to one side, depending on which vision you're looking at, who, um, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So this is 539 B.C., right after Babylon had fallen to the Medes and the Persians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood, I love this, by the books. I understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. If you ever wondered, what did Daniel ever do for quiet time? He read, at least on this day, the scrolls of Jeremiah the prophet. He's reading and contemplating the scripture. And he comes across this prophecy of Jeremiah where it says Israel is going to be captive in Babylon 70 years and he's thinking back to when that first happened. He's lived through it. And now he knows that time's about up. He looks at his hourglass. Yep, about, it's about up. 70 years, man. We're about at the end of it. Verse 3, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. He begins a great prayer of, of, of confession as well as prayer of supplication. Go down to verse 21. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, that's back in chapter 8, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
This the evening offering in Jerusalem. Even though there's no temple, even though there's no sacrifices, that was how they kept the time. Three o'clock in the afternoon, that's when the lambs were killed in the temple, evening sacrifice. And he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Please Note that. Why? Because some people think Daniel chapter 9 is hard to understand, and yet the angel said, I want you to understand this. I'm going to give you skill to understand. This is not some cryptic thing filled with confusion and obfuscation. This is revelation, man. This is God making things clear to Daniel. I want you to understand, and he wants us to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Here it is. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Amazing verse of Scripture. One of the most important verses in all of Scripture. It says, 70 weeks are determined. You see the word determined? It, it means to divide or to cut. What it means, basically, is this. God has spliced out of all of history this time period. He's marked out what is called here 70 weeks. This 70 weeks is a divine timetable that God cut out, divided out, spliced out of history for certain things to be accomplished. When those 70 weeks are up, the six things that are enumerated in verse 24 will be accomplished. If you want to look at it again, you can see what's going to happen at the end of that time. Finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. That is the most holy place. So what does that mean? Well, 70 weeks, let me give you the exact Hebrew, Shebuim Shevim. Shebuim Shevim. Literally, that means 77s. Now, it says weeks here because in a week there are seven days, but the Hebrew is Shebuim Shevim. 77s are determined. That seven, that set of seven could be seven days, could be seven years. Sometimes in the Bible and in Jewish literature, it speaks, of, it speaks of a week of days. Sometimes it speaks of a week of years. The consensus of both Jewish and Christian conservative scholarship is that we are dealing with 70 sets of seven years or 490 years. You follow? 490 years are determined. Now, stop for just a moment. Let me kind of tell you where Daniel's head is at. Daniel's reading Jeremiah the prophet, and Jeremiah the prophet said that they're going to be in captivity for how many years? Shout it out. How many years? Seventy years. So Daniel's thinking, 70 years, 70 years, 70 years. You know why 70 years? You know why they were in Babylon 70 years? Did God just say, I like the number 70? No, no, 2 Chronicles 36 tells us exactly why. It says, because Israel failed to keep the Sabbath year, so he would extract that from them and gave them a 70-year captivity. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Remember how the Jews, when they would do agriculture, they would till the land for six years. The seventh year, they would let it lie fallow. They'd just give it a rest. The land got a Sabbath for a whole year, every seven years. They didn't do that. They kept planting Harvesting, planting, harvesting, didn't, they never gave the, 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 the land a rest. 
For 490 years, they disobeyed God's sabbatic commandment to give the land a rest. So what God says in the captivity of 70 years is, you owe me 70 years. I'm going to take it out of you. You're going to go into captivity 70 years. I'm going to give the land a big rest. 70 years in a row, you've disobeyed me that long. So Daniel's thinking along these terms. He's thinking 70 years because of 490 years of disobedience. It's as if exactly at that moment, the Lord says, well, now that you're thinking about those 490 years of disobedience and 70 years of captivity, let me give you 490 other years to consider. 70 sets of seven are determined for your holy people, the city of Jerusalem. Now, just to clear it up, to even make it more clear, I hope I'm clearing this up and not covering it up. Many versions of the Bible, some Jewish translations, some Jewish commentaries, um, and, and several modern translations, including the New Century version, just to take the Hebrew text and clarify it in English, instead of saying 77s, simply read thus, and I'm quoting now from the New Century Version. God has ordered 490 years for your people. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with. 490 years cut out, spliced out, that when those 490 years are finished, all those six items in verse 24 will be done, will take place. One of the reasons I know this can't be 70 weeks of days is because that would only be one and a third years. 470 weeks of days would only be one and a third years. That's certainly not enough time for all of those things in verse 24 to occur. And by the way, they haven't occurred yet. We're still waiting for that. Okay, when does all this begin? Verse 25, know, therefore... No, I want you to know this. Know therefore and understand. And by the way, I have decided in my 20s that I would take this scripture seriously. Know therefore and understand. I made it my goal to memorize many of the figures I'm giving you so that I could share it in the field. I worked in Southern California hospitals among lots of uh, doctors who thought, they hung the world. They hung the moon. They, they were the smartest people on the earth. They were atheistic. And, and so I was able to use Daniel and his prophecies to win many of them to Christ. So know therefore and understand. From the going forth of the command, that's, that's when it's going to begin. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, only time in the Bible, that construction occurs. Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. Okay, seven weeks of years is how many years? 49 years. That's pretty easy math, 49 years. 62 weeks, that's 434 years. So a total of 483 years. You're following me. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem till the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks. The street will be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be killed, executed, cut off. I'll get back to that in a minute. But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. This is the very pinnacle of the book of Daniel, in my opinion. We are told the exact time of Messiah's arrival into Jerusalem. When is that? After the 69th week. So what that means is, you should be able to count 483 years from the command to restore and build Jerusalem. You should be able to count 483 years and end up with Jesus the Messiah, Messiah the Prince, coming to His holy people, 
Jerusalem. The starting point, the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Do we know when that is? We know exactly when that is. Now, I'm going to cut through some of the... the I'm going to, I've waded through the numbers and the scholarship and, and the explanations. Let me just say, there were four in his history, four different edicts given to the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and do something. But the one edict that was given for them to go back and restore and build Jerusalem, you've read it. It's Nehemiah chapter 2. It was given by Artaxerxes Longimanus, and it was March 14th, 445 B.C. We even know the exact date in history. In our calendar, March 14th, 445 B.C. Um, and incidentally, it took 49 years to restore the walls and the streets of Jerusalem. That's the first section. Notice the Messiah is predicted after that first 49-year period, seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks, 483 years. Okay? There is a book. It was written in 1894, I believe, by the head of criminal investigation at Scotland Yard. He was a math whiz. He was brilliant. His name was Sir Robert Anderson. He was so intrigued by Daniel, he put pen to paper and figured out the dates and the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem. And here it is. He figured that 483 years tabulated out by day is exactly 173,880 days. So he counted from March 14th, 445 B.C., and counted 173,880 days, used a calendar, made variations for leap years, etc., and came up with the end of the 483 years, or 173,880 days, with the, a very interesting date, April 6, 32 AD, which happened to be in the Jewish calendar, the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan, many of you now know from our previous Bible studies, was the day the Jews every year selected the lamb who would be sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan, the Passover, and they brought the lamb home. What happened on the 10th of Nisan? What happened April 6, 32 AD? Interesting. Jesus crested the Mount of Olives and looked over the city of Jerusalem and said to his disciples, go into the village next to you and get a donkey. He had never done this before. He always told his followers after he did a miracle, and they said, you're, you're the one, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah. He said, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. How hard would that be? You just got healed. Don't tell anybody. This is the only time he publicly allowed, in fact, commanded a public presentation into the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, your king comes to you lowly on the foal of a donkey, And they saw him coming into the city and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know the story. But something unusual happened. As he nears the city, he says something, and, and here's what I want you to grasp. Not only did Daniel give the exact day when the Messiah would come, Messiah the Prince, what's even more astonishing is Jesus held the Jews responsible to know the date. Know, therefore, and understand. He, he held them accountable. In Luke chapter 19, go down to verse 41 if you have your Bible open, or I'll just read it to you. Now, as he drew near, that is, drew near the city, he saw the city and he wept over it. saying, if you had known, even you, now watch this, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies, that's the Romans, will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. Happened in 70 AD. And level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Romans are going to destroy your city because you should have known this day, this time of your visitation. What day? The 173,880th day, the 483rd year, as Robert Anderson calculated it to the very day. Now, verse 26, Daniel 9. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. I mentioned that means to kill, to execute but not for himself. Jesus came into Jerusalem. The Lamb was selected for the nation on the 10th of Nisan, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. On Passover, he was sacrificed, he was killed, he was cut off, but not for himself. It was an atoning sacrifice, Isaiah 52, so he will sprinkle many nations. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's the missing seven. There's 69 weeks. This final period introduced in verse 27 is the final piece of the puzzle. It's the final seven years. Notice it says in verse 27, he shall confirm a covenant. He who? Back to verse 26, where it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. The people of the prince who is to come, that was the Romans. The Romans destroyed the city. Jesus predicted it. Historically, that happened. So you got a head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire subjugated the Jews, leveled Jerusalem, destroyed it. And as Jesus predicted, historically that happened. But it says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now stop, stop there. There's something else. I gave you the 173,880 days, right? 483 years tabulated out. If you go home, which some of you will, you're going to get out your little calculators on your phones, and you're going to try to tab all this out. You're going to be wrong. You go, how, how could you say that? You're probably going to come up with not 173,880 days. Your computer, if you do the math for the years, is going to come up with 176,295 days. And the reason you're wrong with that number is because you are calculating based on the Julian calendar, our calendar, the Western calendar. You need to calculate on the Babylonian calendar as well as Jewish calendar. It was a calendar of 360 days because we track our calendar according to the sun. They tracked it according to the moon. So fair warning. Now you can go home and have at it. So verse 27, he will confirm the covenant with many for one week, so seven years, covenant, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Hmm, sounds like the guy in chapter 8. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This is yet future. 69 weeks have happened. Jesus died on the cross, ending the 483 years. But it's 490 years. There's still one week. You say, well, didn't that just happen right after Jesus died? Don't we count another seven years? No, we don't. Because what has to happen at the end of 490 years? Back to verse 24. Just want to clear that up. Finish the transgression, make an end of sin, being reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. That hasn't happened. 
So there's a hiatus between 69, as suggested in the text, and the 70th week. It didn't happen seven years after Jesus' death. It will happen after a seven-year period coming sometime in the future prior to Jesus' return. You say, yeah, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, you have to think of what Jesus said. Jesus spoke about the abomination of desolation as something that had not yet happened, something that was in the future. Oh, it happened with Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, when he put that statue of Zeus, etc. But I said that was a historic template for something much greater. So listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 24. And when you see, that's future, from Jesus onward, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, you who are in Jerusalem, get out of town. Get out of Dodge. So he spoke it of as something yet future. What that means is there has been a great parenthesis between week 69 and week 70 for 2,000 years. Okay. Chapter 10. Of Daniel. We're going to finish the book. Daniel 10 is an introduction to chapter 11 and 12, which finishes out the book. It is essentially a lengthy set of prophecies from Darius the Mede to Antiochus the Fourth. It's rehashed again, but in more detail, all the way to the second coming. Look at chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. This is what happens to Daniel. As this revelation comes to him, I mourned three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat, no wine came into my mouth. He was totally depressed. He lost his appetite. As God revealed to him the future desolations and pain in store for his own people, the Jewish people. In other words, Daniel, you think the captivity was bad? It's going to get far worse in the future. Well, Daniel, as we go on, sees a vision of an angel, chapter 10, verse 12. And he said to me, Daniel, do not fear, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, it's interesting, in Daniel 9, Daniel didn't even finish his prayer, and there was the angel, right? Gabriel, to announce the coming of Messiah. By the way, Gabriel is the announce, announcing angel. He announced to Daniel the plan of the future, including the Messiah. And who showed up to Mary and Joseph? The angel, Gabriel. He's this special, special messenger being. So that happened. As soon as he started praying, the angel came. Here, as soon as he started praying, this angel was dispatched because of your words. Verse 13, but... But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to my help. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. We're getting a little bit of insight, briefly, 30,000 view. We're looking out of the plane. Seeing the satanic battlefield. It talks about here the 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 prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, we know who the kings of the kingdom of Persia were. It was King Darius and King Cyrus. They were joint kings of this coalition. Who was the prince? Question mark. Who was the prince? Well, do you remember back in Ezekiel 28, judgment pronounced on Tyre? Take a lamentation against the king of Tyre. Do you remember that? And then midway in the chapter, take a lamentation against the prince of Tyre. And it says, you were in the Garden of Eden. So obviously that's not any kind of a human that was living at that time. It was some being that was in the Garden of Eden. It was the anointed cherub that covers. Likewise here, we know who the kings are. The prince seems to be some demonic entity behind the political scenes of Medo-Persia. Now, why is that interesting? Because you're getting a behind-the-curtain view behind the political curtain. If you wonder why 
politics is so goofed up, maybe this will shed a little bit of light on it. I believe there are demonic entities over areas, over uh, realms, governors, kings, princes, prime ministers, and the like. Now, when we hear this, the prince of Persia, and we think of a demonic, demonic entity, my mind starts thinking, I wonder what the prince of, like, San Francisco is. Or, or Las Vegas, or Hollyweird. <laughs> pretty powerful, pretty strong, I'm guessing. Chapter 11. 45 verses in this chapter, and um, I'm not going to go into detail. I'm just going to sum a couple things up before we close the book. I one time outlined this chapter with incredible detail and put it on an 8.5 by 11 sheet and passed it out to the whole church so they would have it as a memorial. Some of you may have it. Or you can probably get it online. But essentially, in, um, in chapter 11, we have, in 30, so we have 45 verses. 35 verses are passed. Uh, the, the, the last few verses are unfulfilled. So we have, it's all future to Daniel, to us today, 35 have been fulfilled. Uh, the last section, the little section, is yet future unfulfilled. But get this. In 35 verses, there are 135 fulfilled prophecies. Amazing detail. The best way to understand this chapter is through the lens we've already been given in chapter 9, through Daniel's 70 weeks. 69 weeks, and then the last one, the 70th week, seven years period, the tribulation period. Revelations is seven years. So 69 and 7. The first 35 verses describe Israel in conflict during the first 69 years, past tense. The last set of verses, verse 36 to verse 45, describe Israel in conflict during the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. When it's not Antiochus Epiphanes, is now the Antichrist. Takes us to chapter 12. At that time, we've seen Gabriel. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Now just think of all the bad times in history. This is worse. This is worse. If you wonder how bad could it ever get, read Revelation beginning in chapter 6 and keep following it. You'll see how bad it's going to get. Never before has the world experienced what Revelation, that section, details. And here we get it in kernel, nutshell form. There will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So this is just before the end. Israel will be persecuted again. Um, Paul says in Romans, all Israel will be saved. If you want to know how they're saved, you can read those sections of Revelation. You can read Zechariah chapter 12, and it will give you the answer. I love, though, it says Michael, is, Michael will stand up. There's two angels named in the Bible. We get both of them here in the section called Daniel. We get Gabriel, that's the announcing angel. And we get Michael, he's the great defender of the Jewish people. Uh, if you want another reference of him, go to Revelation chapter 12, where Michael is fighting the demonic hordes in that heavenly battle. Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, I'm pausing there because this is the very first mention in all of Scripture of everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. K key verse. How many of you want to be wise? Raise your hand. That's good. That's most of you. <laughs> the world will tell you how to be wise. 
There is a wisdom in the conventional wisdom of this world. There is a wisdom they say you must have to be worldly wise. If you want to be biblically wise, this is how. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, he who wins souls is wise. It's the measuring stick for wisdom. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Next time we're at Freedom Celebration, after the fireworks, don't go home. Stay glued to your seat. Let everybody else go. Just keep looking up. Because after those bottle rockets and that music and smoke clears and those, that beautiful grand finale is gone, just keep looking up and you'll see something that was there before the night began, before your life began, the stars. Some people want to just have a life that's like a lot of flare and boom, bam, like a firework. But if you're wise, if you want to shine forever, Make it your goal in life to bring with you to heaven as many people as you can. The height of selfishness is a Christian content to go to heaven alone. If you want to be wise, bring people with you. Verse 4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. It's always exciting to study prophecy. And as I mentioned, when I worked in hospitals in Westminster, California, in Orange, uh, California, Orange County Medical Center, I, um, I loved showing to the skeptics the book of Daniel and taking them through some of these prophecies. Because we get a view, a bird's eye view, that is different from an historical view. So let's close with this analogy. It's parade day. It's the 4th of July. We're in our, our, our town, maybe the town you grew up in if you're thinking of your 4th of July parade or you're here. And, and you're there and the floats come by. First of all, the clowns with bicycles come by. And some of you go, oh, I love those clowns on bicycles. Others, man, those spooky clowns riding bicycles. Get them out of here. So the clowns with bicycles go by. After that, the high school queen float comes by and she waves and, and uh, the mayoral float is way down at the beginning and hasn't, you, you hadn't gotten to you yet. One of your friends comes in after the parade has begun and says, man, um, I want to see the clowns on bicycles. Are, 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 have they come yet? You say, well, yes, they have. They've already passed. They've already gone by. But if you go ahead, you can see what's passed. Somebody else comes and says, man, I want to see the mayoral float, but, but I got to leave in five minutes. You say, well, that hasn't come yet. But if you, if you uh, go all the way to the beginning, um, uh, you, you'll be able to see it. But if you get up in a blimp and you go hundreds of feet above that parade site and you look down, you can see the mayoral float the creepy clowns on the bicycles, the high school queen. You can see all those floats at one time. The vantage point of biblical prophecy lets God's people see that bird's eye, not 30,000 feet, but, but keep going, of all of world history. It might make you a little sick to your stomach as you read Revelation 6 through 19 to see what's coming, like it made Daniel physically sick. But keep reading to the coming of the Messiah at the end where rule and righteousness prevails on the earth. And you'll get pretty excited. You'll get the entire view of Scripture in one fell swoop. We get that in Daniel. We get part of that in Ezekiel. Part of that in Isaiah. We get that in Revelation. We get that in Matthew 24. We get that in the book of Revelation all the way through to the millennial kingdom and the um, eternal state, etc. But time's up. The plane has landed. The eagle has landed. Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, we want to thank you for this monumental text 
of Scripture. Where Daniel was given a timetable that had an exact starting date when Israel would be allowed to go back into their land and build a wall and a street in difficult and troublous times as Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel discovered. But then all the way through to the end of the 70th week, the edge of the 490 years when everlasting righteousness the anointing of the most holy place, the end of transgression, reconciliation for iniquity, all of it would be accomplished. But here we are tonight in that blimp looking out over that great parade ground, seeing it all. And we thank you, Lord, because we walk away knowing you have a plan, you're right on time, you're never late. And if you are that detailed with the events of history, certainly we can surrender our lives to you. Because you will be meticulous with us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will never fail us. So we rest. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. For more resources, visit calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from the Bible from 30,000 feet.